This episode is brought to you by Rebecca Fisher. Rebecca, thank you for your support. In our previous episode, we covered the Cuban Missile Crisis, the most dangerous moment in the Kennedy administration, perhaps the most dangerous moment of the entire Cold War. But Kennedy had yet to confront his greatest dilemma, the problem America faced in Vietnam. How Kennedy sought to resolve this issue is the story of this episode of This American President. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II, and people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts. When Kennedy entered office back in 1961, the communists were making inroads in Laos. At the time, he felt that it was the biggest problem on his plate, believing Laos to be a key domino, that if it fell, Southeast Asia would fall to the communists. There was a civil war in Laos where the United States supported one side and the Soviets and Chinese supported another. Kennedy was being pressured to intervene militarily. He sent in a small token force, but mainly focused on forging a diplomatic solution. He sent veteran diplomat Avril Harriman to negotiate a ceasefire and help create a coalition government that included communist forces. This agreement, forged in 1962, allowed Laos to be neutral in the broader Cold War conflict. It wasn't ideal, but at least it calmed things down. The problem was that the communists in Laos soon violated the agreement, and they were also working with communists in neighboring Vietnam. The Vietnamese communists were led by Ho Chi Minh. As we learned in our Eisenhower episodes, the Vietnamese were able to kick out their colonial masters, the French, in 1954. The new nation soon divided into two camps, the communists in the north and those supported by the United States in the south. But by 1960, the regime in the North was infiltrating the South in an attempt to reunify all of Vietnam under communism. South Vietnam was led by No Dinh Diem, one of the least helpful allies America has ever had. When he came into power in the mid-1950s, he refused to carry out national elections, as called for in the Geneva Agreement in 1954. A Catholic, he implemented anti-Buddhist policies. His regime was corrupt and repressive. He failed to implement any real reforms, angering the population and allowing the communists to gain support. The North then sponsored a guerrilla movement in the South, led by an organization called the Viet Cong. As I've already mentioned, early in his presidency, Kennedy had pursued a diplomatic solution in Laos, but he also felt he had to take more aggressive action in Vietnam. 
North Vietnam was violating the agreement in Laos by stationing troops there, and Kennedy especially felt more pressure because of the Bay of Pigs debacle, saying, quote, There are just so many concessions that one can make to the communists in one year and survive politically. We just can't have another defeat in Vietnam. JFK felt he was in a bind. He wanted to do all he could to prevent South Vietnam from falling to communism. In his eyes, Vietnam, like Laos, was a crucial domino in Southeast Asia. But he knew that the odds of military success in Vietnam was low. He especially felt that introducing ground troops was bound to fail. After all, the French had sent in several hundreds of thousands of troops in Vietnam, but still lost. Eisenhower felt the same way, which is why, during his presidency, he refused to send large numbers of ground troops there after the French were defeated. Kennedy may have been steady during the Cuban Missile Crisis, but, as we will see, he was baffled and indecisive when it came to Vietnam. Still, Vietnam was mainly a sideshow in 1961 and 1962. During those years, Kennedy sent money to help Jam increase his army and sent in advisors in the hopes that the situation wouldn't deteriorate. Those advisors were not quite combat troops, but they were more or less personnel that could help train and assist the South Vietnamese military. Kennedy also sent Jam defoliants, napalm, and some helicopters. Despite this assistance, the situation fell apart as the Viet Cong took over more and more of the countryside. By late 1961, Kennedy's advisors, including Army Chief of Staff Max Taylor and Secretary McNamara, were advising that he send in combat troops. McNamara called for sending a force of 40,000. At the same time, Kennedy also got advice from Secretary of State Rusk, George Ball, and his aide Arthur Schlesinger against sending in any boots on the ground. At times, GM seemed to be countering the Viet Cong relatively well. Kennedy also tried to get GM to implement a counterinsurgency program based on creating, quote, strategic hamlets. This involved separating the rural population from the Viet Cong and providing the people with medical and educational services. GM put his brother, No Dian Nu, in charge. The problem was that the South Vietnamese government didn't really give the population the promised help, and New inflated the program's success. The Department of Defense was also using questionable criteria to measure the success of the effort against the communists. Secretary McNamara was obsessed with quantifying aspects of the military effort. He claimed that, quote, every quantitative measurement we have shows we are winning the war. But this numbers-based approach obscured the fact that the Hamlet program wasn't actually having any real impact on the ground. It didn't take into account that using numbers to quantify a war gave the South Vietnamese an incentive to play to the numbers rather than achieve actual military success. This was the situation throughout 1961 and 62. By 1963, Jim was getting tired of the United States. Getting American help meant American scrutiny on how he governed his country and criticisms over his policies against the Buddhists. By this time, GM stopped listening. He began asking that Kennedy reduce the number of U.S. military advisors. One of Kennedy's close friends, Charles Bartlett, claimed that Kennedy said to him, quote, We don't have a prayer of staying in Vietnam. These people hate us. They're going to throw our tails out. But I can't give up a piece of territory like that to the communists and then get the American people to re-elect me. It seemed that when it came to Vietnam, political considerations were at the forefront of Kennedy's mind, something that would continue into his successor, Lyndon Johnson's presidency. Despite all of this, the military assured Kennedy that, quote, victory is now a hopeful prospect. The spring of 1963 was a turning point. Buddhists in Vietnam had had enough of Jam's oppressive policies. The last straw was when Jam banned the display of any religious flags during Buddha's birthday in the ancient capital city of Hue. In May of 1963, tens of thousands of Buddhists demonstrated in protest. The situation turned deadly when Jam's forces attacked and killed seven of the demonstrators. By August of 1963, Jam had imposed martial law over the country. Although he tightened his grip over the country, 
there was division within his government over his policies, especially within the South Vietnamese military. Jam was becoming a liability for America, but Kennedy maintained that there was no alternative to him. He sent over Republican Henry Cabot Lodge, his old foe in the 1952 Senate race, as ambassador to South Vietnam. Shortly thereafter, on August 24, 1963, Lodge alerted Kennedy that the situation was reaching a breaking point and that the South Vietnam military was starting to plot a coup against Jam and Nu. To many in the Kennedy administration, this was an opportunity to remove the troublesome brothers from power and replace them with more competent leadership. Kennedy was open to the coup, but General Taylor, McNamara, and CIA Director McCone disagreed with removing Jam. On August 26th, several of Kennedy's advisors got into a very heated conversation during a National Security Council meeting over Vietnam policy. JFK was appalled at what was happening, saying, quote, My God, my government's falling apart. He was right to some extent. The strategic Hamlet program and the overall military effort were failing, and his administration was hopelessly divided on what to do. Kennedy himself was undecided. He was haunted by his failure during the Bay of Pigs invasion. He told Lodge, quote, I know from experience that failure is more destructive than the appearance of indecision. When we go, we must go to win. But Kennedy began to warm to the idea of a coup. The possibility of better leadership in Saigon was enticing. McNamara started to worry about what would happen and how things might look if America was complicit in a coup. He tried to warn GM to ditch his brother New, believing New to be the source of the trouble. But again, the administration was torn in the issue. Ambassador Lodge wanted GM out of power and ignored all attempts to warn him. As planning for the coup continued in Saigon, Kennedy still fretted over what to do. He and his advisors continued to argue out the options. Bobby Kennedy recognized that they were at a turning point. If the effort in South Vietnam was unwinnable, he argued, quote, now was the time to get out of Vietnam entirely rather than waiting. But he added that if ousting Jam could help lead to ultimate victory, they should support the coup. On September 2, 1963, Kennedy gave an interview to Walter Cronkite, which made clear his indecision. I don't think that uh, unless a greater effort is made by the government to win popular support, that the war can be won out there. In the final analysis, it's their war. They're the ones who have to win it or lose it. We can help them. We can give them equipment. We can send our men out there as advisors, but they have to win it, the people of Vietnam, against the communists. We're prepared to continue to assist them, but I don't think that the war can be won unless the people support the effort. And in my opinion, in the last two months, the government has gotten out of touch with the people. The repressions against the Buddhists, uh, we felt, were very unwise. Now, uh, all we can do is to make it very clear that we don't think this is the way to win. It's my hope that this will become increasingly obvious to the government, that they will take steps to try to bring back popular support for this very essential struggle. But these people who say that uh, we ought to withdraw from Vietnam are wholly wrong, because if we withdrew from Vietnam, the communists would control Vietnam Pretty soon, Thailand, Cambodia, Laos, Malaya would go, and all of Southeast Asia would be under the control of the communists and under the domination of the Chinese. And then India, Burma would be the next target. So I think we should stay. We should make it clear, as Ambassador Lodge is now making it clear, that while we want to help, we don't see a successful ending to this war unless the people will support it. And the people will not support the effort if uh, the government continues to follow the policy of the past two months. But I don't agree with those who say we should withdraw. That'd be a great mistake. That'd be a great mistake. I know people don't like Americans to be engaged in this kind of an effort. Forty-seven Americans have been killed in combat with the enemy. Uh, but uh, this is a very important uh, struggle, even though it's far away. In this recording, you hear Kennedy affirming America's commitment to South Vietnam, its efforts to aid Jam's government, and its intention to not withdraw. But Kennedy also emphasized the limitations of what America could do. Ultimate success, Kennedy was saying, rested in the hands of the South Vietnamese. If GM's government would introduce good governance, it could win the support of its people 
and initiate a successful military effort against the North Vietnamese. In essence, Kennedy was telling the American people, buck up, this isn't fun, but this is the situation that the Cold War demands of us. But he was also saying that we couldn't really dictate the outcome. He seemed to be saying that America was in a tight situation, in a thankless task that it still had to undertake. Basically, it was a crap sandwich, but one that America had to eat. In an interview just a few days later on the Huntley-Brinkley News Show, Kennedy affirmed his support for the domino theory. NBC News anchor David Brinkley asked him, quote, Have you had any reason to doubt this so-called domino theory, that if South Vietnam fails, the rest of Southeast Asia will go behind it? In response, Kennedy said, quote, No, I believe it. I believe it. I think that the struggle is close enough. China is so large, looms so high just beyond the frontiers, that if South Vietnam went, it would not only give them an improved geographic position for a guerrilla assault on Malaya, but would also give the impression that the wave of the future in Southeast Asia was China and the communists, so I believe it. The situation continued to fall apart. Around mid-September, Kennedy sent a military official named Victor Krulak and a diplomat named Joseph Mendenhall to investigate how the military effort in Vietnam was going. After their visits, Krulak and Mendenhall gave completely contradictory reports, the former saying that the war was going well, and the latter saying that it was unwinnable. Kennedy was incredulous, asking them, quote, The two of you did visit the same country, didn't you? After Krulak and Mendelhall's unhelpful report, in late September, Kennedy sent Robert McNamara and General Taylor to Vietnam on a fact-finding mission. That too didn't help. They returned with a report that also had mixed findings, indicative of the confusion going on in Vietnam. The report dated October 2nd, showed that there was some optimism regarding the military effort in the country. Quote, the military campaign has made great progress and continues to progress. But it warned, quote, the GMU government is becoming increasingly unpopular. The report's recommendations focused on boosting the military effort, calling for, quote, an increase in the military tempo in all core areas. But it also recommended an exit strategy. Quote, a program be established to train Vietnamese so that essential functions now performed by the U.S. military personnel can be carried out by Vietnamese by the end of 1965. It should also be possible to withdraw the bulk of U.S. forces by that time. The document advised one specific step to signal that exit strategy, with the recommendation that, quote, in accordance with the program to train progressively Vietnamese to take over military functions, the Defense Department should announce in the very near future presently prepared plans to withdraw 1,000 U.S. military personnel by the end of 1963. This action should be explained in low-key as an initial step in a long-term program to replace U.S. personnel with trained Vietnamese without impairment of the war effort. Historians have gone back and forth about the significance of this recommendation. Some argue that this showed an intention in the administration to eventually extricate the United States from the Vietnam situation to some degree, although others point out that the question of how and to what degree America would continue to support the South Vietnamese government is still an open question. The report also recommended pressuring GM quote, to reduce repressive practices and to improve the effectiveness of the military effort. And it observed, quote, there is no solid evidence of the possibility of a successful coup, although assassination of GM or Nhu is always a possibility. Kennedy approved the recommendation to withdraw 1,000 troops. By then, the U.S. had 17,000 advisors in Vietnam. Kennedy never got to explain why he approved it, or what his plans were beyond that withdrawal. It's possible Kennedy was doing it to pressure GM to shape up. Or maybe it was a show of confidence, to show that things were going well in Vietnam, and that would help him in the run-up to the 1964 re-election campaign. Kennedy also approved the recommendation to expand and accelerate training for the South Vietnamese military, perhaps to pave the way for the eventual departure of American troops from Vietnam in a potential second Kennedy term. 
Years later, President Richard Nixon announced the same policy in his, quote, Vietnamization plan. Kennedy appeared to have been implementing his own Vietnamization policy. Regardless of all of this, in Saigon, the planning for the coup continued. Senior Vietnamese General Dong Van Min reached out to the United States about the coup. The White House responded that it would not, quote, stimulate a coup, but it wouldn't, quote, thwart one either. This was basically tacit approval of the overthrow. But by late October 1963, there were fears of what the consequences of a coup would be. Bobby Kennedy worried about what kind of regime would take Jim's place in the event of a coup, maybe one even less cooperative than Jim's government. General Taylor feared that a coup would destroy the military progress thus far gained. JFK had to know that the plans were risky and that he was playing with fire. Jim's life was in grave danger. He sent a close personal friend, Congressman Torbert MacDonald, to Saigon to warn Jim that his life was in danger. MacDonald advised Jim to keep safe haven in the American embassy, but Jim refused. On Monday, November 4th, 1963, Kennedy recorded the following note to himself. Monday, November 4th, 1963. The, uh, over the weekend, the uh, coup in Saigon took place. Culminated uh, three months of uh, conversation about a coup, comma, conversation which divided the government here and in Saigon. I uh, feel that uh, we must bear a good deal of responsibility for it, beginning with our cable of early August, in which we suggested the coup. Period, in my judgment, that wire was badly drafted. It should never have been sent on a Saturday. I uh, should not have given my consent to it without a roundtable conference in which McNamara and Taylor could have presented their views. I was uh, shocked by the death of Zim and New. I'd met Zim with Justice Douglas many years ago. He was an extraordinary character. While he became increasingly difficult in the last months, nevertheless, over a 10-year period, he held this country together maintain its independence under very adverse conditions. The, the way he was killed made it particularly important. New and Jim had been apprehended by military officers. New was bayoneted to death while Jim was shot in the head and killed. You can tell from the recording that Kennedy was still absorbing the events with a certain measure of shock and regret. If Kennedy hoped that this would lead to better governance, he was mistaken. The coup would increase instability in Saigon as various generals vied for power. The chaos was making it harder for the United States to claim success or progress. The U.S. had encouraged the coup, but hadn't thought out its implications. Even though Kennedy had signed off on the removal of a thousand troops, the record shows that he presided over a dramatic increase in America's commitment to South Vietnam. 73 Americans had died in Vietnam during his presidency. He had refused to escalate further, but things were spiraling out of control. He had yet to make a definitive decision. His entire policy in Vietnam had been one of indecision. Perhaps he wished to postpone that reckoning until after his re-election effort in 1964. Kennedy entered office hoping to build America's credibility with the Third World he found the third world to be vastly more difficult than he could have ever imagined. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. 
I also take a look at events unfolding in that era like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. By the fall of 1963, Kennedy began focusing more on his upcoming re-election campaign. A few days after the South Vietnamese coup, the Republican governor of New York, Nelson Rockefeller, announced that he was a candidate for the Republican nomination. Arizona Republican Senator Barry Goldwater had yet to announce, but he was widely expected to run. He and Kennedy were friends and old colleagues from the Senate. Some accounts indicate that the two looked forward to running against each other if Goldwater could get the nomination. Kennedy felt that it was going to be a tough race. He told his aides that he doubted whether he could make any inroads into the states he lost in 1960, saying, quote, Let's quit on Kansas and Nebraska. North Dakota? That's impossible. He added, quote, What is it we have to sell them? We hope to sell them prosperity. But for the average guy, prosperity is nil. He's not unprosperous, but he's not very prosperous. He's not going to make out well off, and the people who are well off hate our guts. Kennedy had also proposed a civil rights bill earlier that year. He feared that this would cost him politically in the South, saying, quote, We're the ones shoving the Negroes down his throat. Texas was key to his re-election hopes. He had carried the state in 1960 by just two percentage points, thanks in large part to having Lyndon Johnson as his running mate. The problem was that he was still unpopular in the state, and the Democratic Party was split between liberals and conservatives. He hoped that a trip to Texas, scheduled for November 21st and 22nd, would help mend some fences. He flew to Texas on the 21st with his wife, Jackie. Vice President Lyndon Johnson and his wife joined them as they swung through San Antonio, Houston, and Fort Worth. Kennedy gave speeches, got a tour of Brooks Air Force Base, and attended a dinner honoring Congressman Albert Thomas. While in Houston, JFK and his wife attended dinner for the League of United Latin American Citizens, where Jackie charmed the audience by speaking Spanish. An observer later commented on how beautiful the couple looked. They flew to Fort Worth and retired that night at a hotel. The next day, November 22nd, the presidential party attended breakfast at the Fort Worth Chamber of Commerce, where Kennedy spoke about the contribution Texas was making to America's national security. Then they took a short flight to Dallas, landing at Love Field at 11.38 a.m., the Kennedys and the Johnsons got into separate cars for a motorcade that would take them through the streets of Dallas and to the Dallas Trademark, where they would have lunch and where Kennedy would give a speech. Texas Governor John Connolly and his wife joined the Kennedys in their car. Since Kennedy was unpopular in Texas, there was concern that he might be given a hostile welcome by hecklers. There was also some concern that he might be in some sort of physical danger. Adley Stevenson, had visited Dallas a few weeks earlier and was confronted by an aggressive crowd that spat on him. One woman struck him with a placard. Just before the trip, Kennedy said, quote, We're heading into nut country. But to the president's surprise, and to the surprise of his touring party, Dallas welcomed him and Jackie with open arms. Thousands of people filled the streets to see them, smiling and waving as the motorcade passed by. A wonderful welcome having been given to the president here in downtown Dallas. It was a it was quite a spectacle. One that Dallas won't see for a long time to come. And any fears that might have existed in the minds of some about uh, the alleged small handful of people who might have uh, launched severe demonstrations to mar the president's visit, these were uh, apparently unjustified or at least taken care of in uh, good order by the Dallas Police Department who had such a tremendous force in evidence at the uh, downtown uh, areas and all over the city of Dallas as the motorcade moved through that there was uh, no danger whatsoever and none in evidence of adverse uh, reactions to the president's visit. A completely overwhelming welcome for the president. Now this is Bob Huffaker in downtown Dallas returning you to Jay Hogan at uh, KRLD Studio. 
At around 12.30 p.m., near the end of the trip to the trademark, the motorcade approached Dealey Plaza. Noting the warm reception, Mrs. Connolly turned to Kennedy and said, quote, Mr. President, you can't say that Dallas doesn't love you. In his distinct Boston accent, he replied, quote, No, you certainly can't. Just moments later, a man aimed a rifle at Kennedy and pulled the trigger. The bullet ripped through the air and hit its mark. President Kennedy and Governor John B. Connolly of Texas have been cut down by an assassin's bullet as they toured downtown Dallas on an open automobile. The president, his limp body cradled in the arms of his wife, was rushed to Parkland Hospital. The governor also was taken to Parkland. What was a wonderful welcome in downtown Dallas has become a scene of indescribable horror as hundreds of people crowd outside the back door of the emergency room here at Parkland Hospital. Faces are ashen white, and people are wondering, is our president going to live? Ladies and gentlemen, we have a press report over the wires. We hope that it is unconfirmed, but we have to doubt it. That the President of the United States has been the victim of an assassination. We will play the funeral march from Beethoven's Third Symphony. Right now, I just don't know what to do. Was there much emotion among the congregation? There was, really. It was amazing to see the number of men who came into the cathedral sobbing, almost convulsed with sorrow, anguish. But all we can do now is pray for him and about all we can do. An entire loss to the world is hardly believable. No one wants to say anything on an occasion like this, but someone must have something to say. Mr. Wright, do you have something to say? We have just learned that our president is dead. This is a sad day, a day of grief, a day of shame for this land that anyone would hate, that anyone would seek to kill the president of the United States. We must strive anew to rebuild our faith and our hope May a merciful God console his loved ones and his family. May that same God bless this land that from this moment of such deep grief, we may rebuild in faith and not in fear and love and not in hate. I know the nation mourns and, and will deeply mourn. Those of us who were with him today when he was so alive so buoyant, so outgoing, exposing himself to the public, will never forget this experience and will always remember him as the president who went to the people, not fearing to expose himself, his person, his safety, his own repose to his land and his people. Hello everyone, 
My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. I once watched a documentary on the Kennedy assassination produced in the UK, so it had a bit of an outside perspective on how the assassination shaped the United States. And one line stuck with me. The narrator said that Americans hadn't gotten over it. I felt that this was an astute observation. If you talk to anyone who was alive during the assassination and ask them about it, to this day, they usually convey the sense of shock and senselessness they felt when it happened. They usually can tell you exactly where they were and what they were doing when they found out that the president had been killed. And for many who were either too young to remember it or weren't born yet, the assassination remains an endlessly fascinating topic. Sometimes it's a bit of a macabre fascination. There are assassination buffs who've watched the footage of Kennedy being shot over and over again, trying to figure out just what happened that day. There are alleged autopsy photos of JFK that you can find in books or on a Google search, photos that are studied for evidence. Thousands of books, documentaries, and movies have been made telling us who killed Kennedy, whether it was, as the government said, Lee Harvey Oswald, or a broader conspiracy. There are questions that continue to perplex the American people. Why was Lee Harvey Oswald himself killed just two days after the assassination? Was there a second gunman on the grassy knoll? Kennedy died after serving as president for two years, ten months, and two days. He was 46 years old, the shortest lifespan for any American president. His death cut short a presidency that was still in the making, with many goals and initiatives left undone. It would fall upon his successor, Lyndon B. Johnson, to see these goals accomplished. The trauma and unique circumstances of Kennedy's assassination would leave a deep imprint on the psyche of the American people. They remember Kennedy's thick Boston accent and his soaring eloquence. They remember his charisma and the glamour surrounding him and his family. They recall images of him and his beautiful wife and him playing with his young children. But they also remember the darker side of the Kennedy years. They hear about the accusations against him and his family that his father was a bootlegger, and that he stole the 1960 election. They remember the affairs. They picture Marilyn Monroe singing Happy Birthday to him on national television. They see books being published by women, even over half a century after his death, that reveal yet another one of Kennedy's extramarital affairs. They remember the scandals that rocked his family even after his death, that his brother Teddy drove his car off a road in Chappaquiddick. And while Teddy managed to get out of the car, left a young woman to drown. They remember the haunting images of JFK in Dallas, with Jackie next to him in her pink suit, shaking hands with the crowds and riding in the motorcade. They've seen the footage of him getting shot. They remember the image of little John John saluting his father's casket. These images, perhaps, are the biggest imprint Kennedy left in the collective memory of the American people. They are, perhaps more vivid than anything Americans remember about other presidents, like Dwight Eisenhower, and even more recent ones like George H.W. Bush. Kennedy was one of the most popular presidents of all time. He still holds the highest approval average in Gallup polling, at 70%. Compare that to Ronald Reagan's average, at 53%, and Bill Clinton's at 55%, both two-term presidents. And that popularity has lasted. When Gallup polled a sample of Americans in 2010 on their feelings towards recent presidents, Kennedy rated the highest with an 85% approval rating. Reagan came in second with 74%, while Kennedy's 1960 opponent, Richard Nixon, polled lowest at 29%. But you have to wonder how much of his popularity comes from what Kennedy actually did versus what he represented and what feelings he evoked in the American people. Part of it might have to do with the way history turned out after his death. His successor, Lyndon Johnson, achieved much of Kennedy's domestic goals, 
passing a tax cut and civil rights legislation, but he also escalated American involvement in Vietnam. The result was a stalemate, with tens of thousands of Americans dead, dividing Americans across the country. Soon, assassinations took the lives of Martin Luther King Jr. and Bobby Kennedy. Then Richard Nixon took office, who, despite his foreign policy successes, saw his presidency crumble due to Watergate. Both the war and Watergate would deeply erode the American people's trust in their government institutions and their leaders. The traumas of the 1960s and 70s, the upheavals, the assassinations, the scandals, all of these things led Americans to look back at what happened before with a sense of nostalgia. They remembered the days when Kennedy was in the White House. His assassination seemed to mark a turning point from an era of optimism to one of chaos and confusion. Kennedy obviously didn't have a chance to complete the things he started. The high hopes he inspired in 1960 were left unfulfilled. Whether he would have fulfilled them is a question that historians continue to debate. Kennedy's assassination robbed him of the chance to realize his vision, but it also shielded him from the possibility of failure and disappointment. There are many examples of leaders coming into office with great aspirations, but who leave office with a sense of unfulfilled promise, a sense that the hype didn't match the reality. Had Kennedy lived, would that have been the case? And if so, is his legacy actually enhanced by his violent death? Kennedy supporters often argue that the 35th president had much to accomplish, and that he would have accomplished much had he lived. His aide Arthur Schlesinger claims that Kennedy would have won a second term and passed the Civil Rights Bill, cementing a major domestic policy legacy. They also argue that he would have achieved a new relationship with the Soviet Union, something that he signaled in his American University speech, and maybe even end the Cold War in a second term. Schlesinger also claims that Kennedy was planning to get America out of Vietnam. Had he done so, America would have avoided the combat deaths and the chaos and divisions of the 1960s and 70s. What Kennedy would have done in Vietnam will forever be debated. As we saw earlier, Kennedy dramatically increased the number of military advisors in Vietnam from about 1,500 to 16,000. If anything, American commitment and involvement intensified during Kennedy's presidency. During his three years in office, he agonized over just what to do in Vietnam, never coming to a final decision. The coup in November of 1963 left the United States firmly entrenched in the conflict. He also affirmed several times that leaving Vietnam would be a mistake, even saying that it would be, quote, a great mistake. At the same time, he resisted pressure to send in ground troops to engage in combat. He affirmed his belief that the South Vietnamese were ultimately responsible for their future, and that the United States couldn't win the war for them. And he did approve the withdrawal of 1,000 advisors from Vietnam, with the goal of the South Vietnamese taking up the bulk of the fighting. Kennedy's aides and contemporaries lend some weight to the idea that Kennedy would not have sent in hundreds of thousands of ground troops as Johnson did. Senator Mike Mansfield claimed that Kennedy hinted that he would extricate America out in his second term. Kennedy aide Kenneth O'Donnell asserted that the president was planning to leave Vietnam after the election and said that he was planning to put in a government that would ask America to leave. At the same time, Secretary of State Rusk said that Kennedy never gave him any indication of a full withdrawal. Perhaps Bobby Kennedy, his closest advisor, gives the most revealing clue. When asked if JFK would have introduced ground troops for the purpose of combat, he said, quote, We'd face that when we came to it. In other words, as far as we know, Kennedy hadn't told his closest advisor, Bobby, what he was going to do. If anyone would know, it would have been Bobby. If this is so, we find Kennedy undecided about the Vietnam War right up to his death. Perhaps he was content to improvise as the situation there developed. We saw Kennedy acting cautiously during the Cuban Missile Crisis. He had learned his lesson about using force blithely as he did during the Bay of Pigs. He was acting cautiously, if indecisively, in Vietnam. It's fair to say that Kennedy would have remained cautious. Perhaps that would have prevented him 
from dramatically expanding America's troop presence to the level we saw under Lyndon Johnson. Schlesinger may be right. Maybe Kennedy would have avoided much of what happened under Johnson, but we may never have a definitive answer. Kennedy came into office with an ambitious agenda. He hoped to reorient American foreign policy towards the aspirations of the Third World. It was in the Third World where he found his greatest challenges. In Cuba, he suffered a grievous defeat at the Bay of Pigs, but he rose to the occasion when the Soviets placed missiles there in 1962. He showed himself to be a steady and prudent crisis manager. There are those who do question this narrative. There are those who claim that Kennedy blew things out of proportion. Some say Kennedy could have privately shown the Soviets that he knew about the missiles in Cuba and quietly negotiated to have them removed rather than going public and forcing the Soviets to back down. This is an interesting theory, but it's hard to know whether the Soviets would have been more or less willing to back down without public pressure. Others believe that Kennedy actually lost the confrontation with the Soviets, that by promising not to invade Cuba, or dismantling, albeit quietly, the missiles in Turkey, he had made major moral and geostrategic concessions. There may be some validity to this, but I do think that when you're facing the specter of thermonuclear war, you're probably more concerned with finding a way out than making a concession here or there. The consensus remains that Kennedy, for all of his struggles in his first two years, acted with sober judgment during the missile crisis. In other places, he found himself running hard into reality. His plans to establish new relationships with nations like the Congo and Egypt, though well-intentioned, left many people disappointed. Third-world nationalists, unhappy with the Eisenhower administration's staunchly anti-communist policies, got their hopes up that Kennedy would align America to their interests. But when it became clear that he could only go so far, they became disillusioned. We often see this dynamic play out. One administration comes in with a hard line, whether it's on communism or terrorism or crime or whatever, and its allies find this hard line tiresome. A new administration comes in, inspiring hope among the allies, but those allies are ultimately disappointed when they realize that the new administration can't do what everyone hoped that they would do. This seems to happen over and over. And it has me wondering... What foreign policy is really better? Is it better to stand tough at the risk of alienating other countries? Or is it better to cater to their hopes, only to inevitably disappoint them? Kennedy might have disappointed some, but he continues to inspire many others. Just how much of that inspiration was real, or would have been fulfilled, might never be known. I remember when I was a kid, I had an Encyclopedia Britannica set from the 1960s. In the article about the American presidency, there was a featured message by President Kennedy. It was in response to a question from Parade magazine in the fall of 1962. Parade had asked Kennedy that if he could speak to a current high school or college student who would someday be president of the United States, what advice would he give? Kennedy's response began with, quote, The first lesson of the presidency is that it is impossible to foretell the precise nature of the problems that will confront you, or the specific skills and capacities which those problems will demand. Kennedy concluded, saying, No one can guarantee that if you follow this or any advice, you will become a great president. For the presidency is peculiarly an office which is shaped by the individual who holds it, and greatness depends on the times as well as the man. John F. Kennedy had spent much of his life believing he would die young and race to fulfill his ambitions for himself and his country. In the end, ambition is what drove Kennedy more than anything else, an ambition to be great. He craved greatness for himself and for his country. One historian, John Milton Cooper, said that the one president that most resembled Kennedy was Theodore Roosevelt. Both men were less ideological and more defined by their desire to attain greatness. Both were sickly men who sought to overcome their physical ailments with a robust lifestyle. Both men aspired to intellectual greatness, being prolific readers and noted authors. Both men aspired to make their country great. 
It's why Roosevelt pushed America to build the Panama Canal, and why Kennedy set the goal of landing on the moon. At the same time, Kennedy would learn that those who have great dreams and aspirations were at the mercy of forces outside their control, and that they often bear the greatest burdens. Kennedy's life teaches us about the glory and the limits of lofty ambitions. His untimely death is a reminder of the fleeting nature of earthly glory. On the evening of November 22, 1963, just hours after President Kennedy died, David Brinkley summed up that extraordinary and tragic day. It has all been shocking, but perhaps one element in the shock was the speed by the Washington clock. At a little after one o'clock this afternoon, President Kennedy was about as alive as any human being ever gets. Young, strong, vigorous, looking forward to no doubt five more years, he hoped, of leadership in this country and of the Western world. His wife, young, beautiful, looking very happy, was beside him and seeming to be having a wonderful time and leaning across the back seat of the car to say to him, you can't say Dallas hasn't been friendly to you. That was a little after one o'clock. Five hours later, at six o'clock, Mr. Kennedy had been murdered. Lyndon Johnson was president of the United States. Mrs. Kennedy was a widow, brave and composed one that nobody could fail to admire. All of them were back in Washington, returning in the same airplane that took them to Texas to an incredible tragedy. The sheer speed of it was just too fast for the senses. In about four hours, we had gone from President Kennedy in Dallas alive to back in Washington dead and a new president in his place. There is no more news here tonight and really no more to say except that what has happened today has been just too much, too ugly, and too fast. To learn more about John F. Kennedy, check out The Presidency of John F. Kennedy by James Giglio, President Kennedy, Profile of Power by Richard Reeves, and Strategies of Containment by John Lewis Gaddis. This American President is produced by myself, Richard Lim, and Michael Neal. Special thanks to Jennifer Mazella for her contributions in producing this episode. If you like what you've been hearing, you can help us by leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to our show. We are a proud partner of Evergreen Podcasts. Check out evergreenpodcasts.com for more shows you might enjoy. I'm Richard Lim. We're back next time with more This American President. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week, wherever you get your podcasts.